Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone, on economics, finance, investment on international relations, on politics. Boy, are we doing that with spades over the last uh, number of months. David Gurren, Tom Keen, Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide. David? Eager to bring in now oh, Terry Haynes, somebody who's been incredible. Eager. <laughs> we are now going to commit policy. <laughs> We're going to commit We're going to commit policy and legislation. Go. Somebody who has impressed me with his optimism about there being policy progress over these Good last many months that. is one Terry Haynes. He is the senior political strategist at Evercore ISI in our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, uh, D.C. Terry, uh, in the Hart Senate office building today at 10 o'clock at Wall Street time, Jared Kushner will sit down in front of the senators of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Is it a hearing? Is it an interview? What are you calling it? And what are we likely to learn? What are they likely to learn? We'll learn something different, I suppose, from what trickles out. But what are they likely to learn from Jared Kushner this morning? Good morning, David. Good morning, Tom. Uh, I'll call it a hinterview. A hinterview. Uh, oh, I, I like, like that. that. Yeah, like that. We, probably well, need, we probably need to develop a new term Put a here. trademark um, on that, and, yeah. I, I, you know, I'd, I'd imagine it's uh, it's more of an interview than anything else. But uh, you know, under I think people need to understand that the congressional investigators are uh, are coordinating with the special counsel as well, and so that's a uh, that that that's an indication that uh, uh, both of the seriousness of what's happening today, as well as the the idea that. Uh, they're not getting uh, half-baked testimony. They're getting actually what Mr. Kushner's story is. So uh, he's released details of that this morning. So people could decide for themselves what that means. But uh, you know, but clearly this is going to be, as uh, we pointed out uh, last Thursday, this is, uh, Mr. Kushner's interview, the interview with Mr. Manafort and others are going to be the next shoes to drop here, and we'll see what uh, we'll see what transpires. When you you look at all of these investigations, the interviews, the interviews, the hearings, all all of that. Uh, is it Mueller's that takes precedence here? In other words, is, is what's happening before the Senate Selecting com Committee, is it somehow less important than what Mr. Mueller's doing just because of the, the latitude he has? Uh, that's a really smart question. I wouldn't say it's less important. Uh, the, the congressional investigators can certainly reach their own conclusions uh, distinct from uh, the, the special counsels, uh, but they're both important. And uh, and they're important for Mr. Kushner, yeah. among others, since uh, Mr. Kushner's story has to stay consistent between the two. Terry, it was an exceptionally strong weekend for smart writing, really across all different opinions on all that's going on. I, I thought Jennifer Rubin at the Washington Post took the trophy. This presidency can't be saved. It's all downhill from here. And she, she's, folks, she's a conservative blogger. I mean, she's preaching to the converted, if you will. And she marches through, Terry, the five what-ifs of all this falderall in Washington. Where does policy fit into that? Can the world of Terry Haynes exist given any of the five outcomes Ms. Rubin approaches on Mueller and Russia and all the rest of it? 
Oh, sure. My, my world uh, will, will continue unabated in part because uh, <laughs> politics and policy are, uh, are intertwined and, uh, and you know, we, we cover both so, and uh, interpret them both for markets. But you know, the, the bottom line here, Tom, is that uh, the, the, the Russia probe, the, the, yeah. uh, the special counsel investigation, the congressional investigations are all distractions. And uh, two things I would say about that. One is – there are distractions, that, so that tends to sap energy from a policy uh, perspective. Right. The second thing I would say, then the more positive for markets that I would say is, of course, the president's senior advisors on the things markets care most about, particularly tax reform, is unaffected by all this, number one. Number two, uh, I would urge folks to think of Washington not as completely Trump-centric. Uh, it, is at, it is very important for congressional Republicans, they've always thought so, uh, to add actually deliver on agenda items, and they want to deliver on economic growth, and that means tax reform more than anything well, else, and that will also continue. Okay, just take David Gerd, take one of uh, Jennifer Rubin's scenarios, mm-hmm. lesson, and I'm just picking one, folks. This isn't a political statement. Congress must protect Mr. Mueller and preserve the possibility that Mr. Trump may be forced to resign. Terry, that's got to be a distraction to the Republican congressman from the ex-congressional district of Kansas. You're telling me it's not? No, no, I'm saying it is a distraction. But I'm saying at the same time uh, that that hypothetical Republican congressman uh, has his or her own motivations for wanting to, to, to try to get something done legislatively and that that's important. And that they'll continue to do that. To, to me, the biggest problem uh, with Republicans today, I mean, Trump is certainly a distraction and that's a big problem. The biggest problem uh, among congressional Republicans is that they can't yet agree on how to execute on an agenda. They can't they, – they're so far not agreeing on ta- – on, uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, and there is also some evidence of rifts on tax reform as well, and and you know, those are also distractions. You say that Washington isn't Trump centric, and I wonder if the, the president understands that. I look at some of these tweets over the weekend, including the one that says, "It's very sad that Republicans, even some that were carried over the line on my back, do very little to protect their president." Another one: If, Republican, if Republicans don't repeal and replace the disastrous Obamacare, the repercussions will be far greater than any of them uh, understand. He, he makes it very difficult, uh, suffice to say, for them to go about their business exclusive of him, it seems. Oh, sure. And uh, I don't mean to suggest that, the, uh, the, the, that the, the congressional Republican calculus exists free of whatever's going on with the president at any given time. All I mean to suggest is that they've got their own reasons for, for wanting to come together on policy and execute. You know, they've been telling people for seven years, uh, you know, give us the keys. Uh, to the car, and uh, and we'll drive it, and these are the things that we'll do. Well, now they have the keys to the car, and they don't have complete control over a Washington agenda, but that thanks to budget policy, they've got some uh, budget process, they've got some very good opportunity to actually deliver on tax reform, and they think, for their own reasons, that's something they need to do. All right, so we had a, a, a House Budget Committee hearing last week, a, a vote on the fiscal year 2018 budget. What happens next? How much of that was uh, can you see as a sign of progress? Well, it, it, it is small progress, but I think uh, – and I think ultimately – I mean, we've said this to markets that we think the, uh, the fiscal 2018 budget is about 70 percent likely to pass. But I think people should understand that uh, the budget that came out of the House Budget Committee last week is not going to be that budget. I don't think there is appetite among Republicans generally, both the moderates in 
the House, uh, which outnumber the fiscal conservatives, or the Senate uh, for uh, for large cuts. What what I continue to think we're likely to see here is a budget that does what the last four fiscal year budgets did, which is uh, essentially flat, stable budgets uh, that that make small increases in both defense and non-defense spending. And I think that succeeds in no small part because they have to actually pass a budget. Uh, in order to instruct committees to do tax reform and be able to do tax reform under uh, budget process. Sorry to get on process lane here, but that's important. That's important <laughs> that's for the important scenario. Well. Is, there a, so, is there a process cul-de-sac as well, like in Alexandria somewhere? <laughs> you go down process lane and uh, – Well, the, uh, the process lane, you know, the, the, the cul-de-sac uh, – the, the cul-de-sac is a uh, is something that uh, that exists yeah. not independent of space and time, but is a virtual construct. Uh, <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and right now the, yeah. uh, the you know the cul-de-sac uh, exists on uh, the Affordable Care yeah. Act uh, in in Senate Majority Leader McConnell's office. It's, so, okay. Uh, it's okay. David Gurr's political science education at Cornell was a virtual <laughs> construct. <laughs> so Terry, thank you so much for some sanity. It was a pleasure there, David, to talk policy. Yes. How absolutely. strange. How strange. And we're we're aware of this, folks. I really want to make clear. We get a lot of mail. We get huge pro-Trump, Tom, you're a jerk, emails. We get all that stuff. Thank I get you for the death threats. and as well. You know, it all goes to me. David Gurr gets the yeah, love notes. Filtered out, yeah. but, but we're acutely aware of everyone's feeling that Bloomberg surveillance should be economics, investment, finance, and all that. And yet here we are subsumed with this politics that we... Have to touch yeah, it. We're trying to thread that needle. I'd yeah. say we try to strike that balance and, uh, you know, bring you the news as it breaks. What, yeah, you mentioned the tweets. Did yeah, you, we're not bringing you, you abandoned your children to look at the 85 tweets this week? They're now old enough to criticize me for doing <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. Get off the phone. <laughs> Get a, no, they're probably giving you feedback on the tweets. Today it was over the swamp and the sewer. We'll go yes. back to that. Uh, David, we have a uh, we have a disruptive guest. He's stealing from Clay Christensen up at Harvard. <laughs> Mr. Cohen is disrupting with Warren Russell over at Barclays. Michael Cohen, the head of energy research at Barclays. Let's start with this uh, news of the day: the OPEC meeting taking place in St. Petersburg. Uh, and just to set the table for us, what are what are OPEC members going to be debating, discussing here over the course of the meeting? Dinner? Dinner? Yeah, <laughs> in part. <laughs> well, there there were well. already images on Twitter of a, uh, a breakfast, a very lucrative, um, luxurious breakfast Excellent. in St. Petersburg. So, <laughs> to be um, expected. For, for their purposes, they're trying to ensure that the market has clarity about their production levels for the remainder of this deal. And unfortunately, outside of the 11 OPEC countries and the 10, 15 other countries outside of OPEC, uh, they can't really do anything about the other producers in the world, namely the U.S. tight oil producers yeah. and also uh, Libya and Nigeria. And it's unlikely that Libya and Nigeria are going to accept a production level anywhere below right. uh, their current uh, levels. They've been... You know, subject to to violence, sabotage, a long, long history of of uh, less than ideal production levels. So it's unlikely they're going to accept okay. anything. You, you have soon. a gorgeous PowerPoint map, which we're, we're not going to send it out, folks. We protect the copyright of our guests. It's a Barclays Halima Croft Michael Cohen map of production in Libya. The minutia in detail on this puppy in scenic Wadden. Wadan, Waban, Wadan, Libya, 
the minutia of your map is jaw-dropping. Do you have a clue what the oil production of Libya is? So um, for, for all intents and purposes, for that, that map, I want to... Um, you're going to blame Halima? No, no. Go for it. No. <laughs> Halima with RBC is a wonderful analyst. Um, but uh, we, we want to just attribute that chart and that map to Platts um, and also to the Petroleum Economist. Uh, those are the, source, the sources for yeah. that. But I, I just I do want to clarify um, the point of that uh, map is just to, to understand yeah. that there are two different parts of Libya. There's the, the part um, in the west, the part in the east. And each is subject to their yeah. own set of challenges. To bring it down to, to a final point, um, we can only know what export levels are. We can't right. understand what actual production is. At this point, most estimates peg Libyan production between 900,000 barrels a day and a million barrels a day. Right. The likelihood is that they'll see some improvement <clears throat> to, of about 100,000 barrels right. a day in the next month or two. But we don't think that that level is going to be sustainable. And, right. uh, you know, that's the, the problem with this. And we can't blame OPEC for not giving a longer level of certainty just because there's so much right. uh, lack of clarity <clears throat> about Libya and Nigerian production well, levels. I had, I had to make a surveillance correction is, is Mr. Cohen gracefully corrected me because I didn't have my eyeglasses on David Gurrow, which was correcting my ability to read the notes. And Ms. Croft, of course, is with RBC Capital Market. I almost introduced Michael as a personal attorney to the President of the United no, States. Please, please don't confuse. <laughs> or so, the Boston so Globe. This journalist. is what happens, exactly. folks. Exactly. When I, love, you... I love how the Boston Globe journalist Twitter page, I think, says not <laughs> yeah, that exactly. Yeah, I, mean, this, I need to put that on mine too. <laughs> this is this is, folks, what happens on a Monday in July when you don't do your show in your class. There you go. Uh, Michael, let me just ask you about the, the sell that Mohamed Burkindo is making here, the, the Secretary General of, of OPEC. We talk about the, the non-OPEC participants who are making things difficult for OPEC. How much cohesion or unanimity is there among the members of, of OPEC right now? How much uh, eagerness is there to uh, be party to this deal? So I think that the most important point you have to understand with uh, their adherence to the deal and their willingness to go the, the long haul with all of this is to understand the paradigm before this deal went into place and the paradigm that we're in now. So the paradigm before you were we were in this place before November of 2016 was one where prices move based on market fundamentals yeah. purely. And there was a lack of understanding about where Saudi Arabian output would be. And the strategy was basically maximize revenue. Uh, sorry, the, the strategy then was, was basically maximize market share, whereas the strategy now is maximize revenue. Uh -huh. And so the important thing to understand is that when you're Russia – and you're Saudi Arabia, and you're looking at the prospect of going back to that paradigm before November of 2016, prices could be 30, they could be 40, they could be 60, no one would know, and they could be that way for a month or two months. There, And so what's keeping all of these producers at the table right now is to understand that if they go back to that, that there could be social tensions, there could be a threat to... Um, the broader, you know, country level stability, if that were oh. the case, and they don't want that environment at this point. We have we've done a couple of interviews, and you alluded to this uh, to an interview we did earlier, where these meetings are finessing the message to a pro like you. 
are there substance in a given Vienna or St. Petersburg meeting, or is it essentially like a G20 photo op? I mean, which is it? In some cases, yes, it's nothing more than a photo op. But the the joint the joint technical committee, the monitoring committee, and thus the ministerial min- meeting that happens every six months, there is a substance that comes out of it. Okay, it may just be, you know, tiny. And and I think the point is is that when I look at my balances, yeah, uh, and we do this at a very detailed country level. When I look at my balances and I take into account what OPEC is saying. I do get draws and inventories for the remainder of this year. And that is incremental because I'm not assuming that Saudi Arabia is producing at 10.5 million barrels a day or that OPEC production is basically much higher than it is. So that is important. You mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia a moment ago, and we talk about palace intrigue here in the context of the, the White House. There was an incredible piece in the New York Times a yes, few days ago detailing amazing. about how the succession actually unfolded uh, in Riyadh. What does the, the the change or the reconfiguration of that royal family's uh, leadership hierarchy say to you about uh, oil prices? In other words, can we draw any conclusions ab- about where oil is uh, headed or, or Saudi Arabia's attitude toward oil from what we saw there in Saudi Arabia over these last few weeks? So, you know, obviously this is an extremely sensitive subject um, for Saudi Arabia and, and for analysts. Um, and I, I think that the important thing to understand here is that the Saudis are always going to do what is in their best interest for their own national security. That essentially comes first. And there will be occasions where national security concerns are sacrificed for economic concerns. But in this environment, with a war in Yemen going on, mm-hmm. war in Syria going on, with the the concerns about the, the eastern province, the, the Saudis are likely to prioritize national security concerns over anything else. So that means ensuring that the reforms involved in Vision 2030 are put into place, that Mohammed bin Salman is comfortable in his uh, place of authority, and that there are not threats to that. Uh, because basically what you have to understand is that King Salman could pass away at any point in time. And so... Mohammed bin Salman does not, as the crown prince, does not want to be um, in a place where his authority is questioned or where the country is is in a state of unrest. This is a joy. Michael Cohen writes incredibly detailed reports on hydrocarbons for the Barclays Bank. And and I, I, I want to go to sort of a, a media frenzy. Mr. Musk has been in the news on Tesla and all this. Does electrical cars move the Barclays, Michael Cohen needle, or is it completely overwhelmed by, say, use of coal in China? Um, so that's a very good question. I, I think the, the comparison between coal in China and electric vehicles thought about largely from an energy perspective. Yeah. It's more co- definitely coal. Um, and definitely more so having an impact in the medium term than electric vehicles. What we did in in some of our recent work Mm -hmm. is tried to evaluate in a very aggressive electric vehicle penetration scenario. What I mean by that is where we see adoption go much more much more quickly than what right like the optimists like the you know right, the, the optimist, climate change let's optimist. say the the bloomberg new energy finance type of yeah. exponential pattern so what happens if we see that in besides that, mr musk makes a lot of money exactly in that scenario we see a change in demand of minus two hundred thousand barrels a day now how big is the oil market 
the oil market is roughly 95, growing to 105 million barrels a day by 2025. So the idea that we could curb demand growth by 200,000 barrels a day to us is not nearly as important in the transport sector as what fuel efficiency might mean. So fuel efficiency could actually be three or four times the size of the electric vehicle impact. And so that's what we worry about in the medium term. We don't say it's not an issue. We just have to understand that, first of all, transport sector personal vehicle consumption is roughly 25 million barrels a day of that 100 million barrels a day. Mm-hmm. The rest of that oil demand is either for pet chem, heavy freight, agriculture, whatever. Agriculture, whatever. So the, the, the important thing to understand is that the quantity we're really talking about changing right. with electric vehicles is really only about 25 to 30 million barrels a day. Tell me about the coal dynamic and how it folds into mm. your world of hydrocarbons. And full disclosure, folks, Michael Bloomberg, principal owner of Bloomberg LP, and of course this radio station, Mr. Bloomberg is very involved in the Beyond Coal Initiative. In that, does a grizzled pro like you writing these detailed reports, do you care about coal elasticities in China? Well, what's important to understand for China is that there has to be a price signal that is appropriately uh, in the same vein as what the price signal is for coal. So for coal and for natural gas, prices have to prices will allow a certain amount of natural gas to take over from coal. But at the end of the day, while the government policy remains unclear in the medium term, it's not likely that we're going to see that full transparency of Mm -hmm. pricing for those two primary commodities in China's electric sector. So they remain committed but at this, you know, in terms of, of reducing their overall carbon intensity as part of their, their Paris commitment. But at the end of the day, demand continues to grow. And the cheapest source for that, as well as the source that satisfies the state-owned enterprises mm-hmm. within the country, is going to be coal. And so what we've seen over the course of the last year is more and more LNG imports into China that have started to offset. But we're talking about a major, major source of incremental demand for power over the next couple of years. And of course, if China takes a very aggressive stance on broadening electric vehicles over the course of the next 10 to 20 years, then much of that baseload power is going to have to be met by both coal and natural gas. So it's not going away. Mm. Ask you quickly, we've got about 30 seconds left of what the state of American production is uh, at this point. I've got colleagues here who watch the Baker Hughes rig count like it's the, the weather. Uh, when you look at where it stands right now, how does it look to you? How does American production look? So when you think about the weekly indicator that we get from Baker Hughes, these are the, the rig count, right? The, the, the drilling activity leads to completion activity, which leads to production levels. So even though rig count is flatlining here, what's important to understand is that the productivity of each and every one of those rigs is much, much greater now than it was in the past. Mm. I've heard some people say, well, it's like we're all drilling with Ferraris. Uh And at some point in in 10 years, sorry, not in 10 years, but in in 10 months, we may be drilling with a a Pinto or a much lower, lower quality rig. And so there is the expectation that those drilling efficiencies may fall away. But what, the what? other thing to, to, to just real quickly say is that the drilling cost 
out of drilling in completion costs right. is only about 30 to 40 percent of the overall cost right. of completing and getting okay. well onto production. Michael, thank you so much. Michael Cohen, we've already had requests for his research. No, we protect the <laughs> copyright of our guests. I'm sorry, that's the original surveillance bargain with the street. Call up Barclays to learn more from Mr. Cohen. Worldwide, coast to coast, this is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Peter Hayes with us, joining us now on our phone line. Peter Hayes, also always important to speak to. With BlackRock, as we try to take advantage of tax-free bonds, Peter, let me go go to question one hundred and one. What is the value of munis right now? Yeah, good morning, Tom. The answer to that is it's a little expensive, but you have to think about the bigger backdrop of interest rates. So just to set the table, the return so far this year is measured by a generic index. It's up about 4.6%. So that's pretty good. And if we were to take that through the rest of the year, obviously that would be a a, a pretty robust year for fixed income, for a fixed income asset class. But we don't think that's necessarily going to be the case. I think interest rates have surprised on the downside. The technicals of muni supply demand have been very good. So what that's led to is a lot of demand, money coming into the asset right. class. And as a result, that valuation question that you ask about, we're a bit expensive, particularly on the front end. So it really gets back to what's your view on longer term interest rates? What is the cut between general obligation, what I'm going to call full faith and credit taxable, the taxation of the whatever entity is fully available to the bondholders versus revenue bonds? Which, which is the, where is the value now between GOs and revenues? I think that's an important question for investors to ask because this idea of general obligation bonds certainly was first challenged to some degree in the bankruptcy of Detroit, and now we see playing out some of the pension issues, uh, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, et cetera, and it's leading some to question about the long-term efficacy, if you will, of general obligation bonds. Now, I'm not saying they're going to default, but I think there's a better identifiable revenue stream. If you buy a toll road, for instance, you know that people's tolls are going to go help pay back the debt service. And with GOs, basically what you have to have is, is uh, in many cases, an appropriation. You have to have money set aside to pay that debt service. And with all these competing interests around pensions and providing services and then repayment of debt, it becomes a little bit more in question. So in terms of value, risk, reward, we like the revenue sector, particularly migrating down to the A-rated spectrum. We're here 24 days into a new fiscal year, as you point out, for for 46 states, and uh, a lot of these states had trouble getting a budget uh, through passing a budget on time. How does that play out in the the muni market, that, uh, that political difficulty in a number of these states? You, you would think of that, that it would play out more in terms of credit spreads and valuations around some of these names. You're right, 10 states actually were late in passing budgets, and it shows you some of the difficulty as revenues remain, uh, they're positive, but somewhat benign in the context of, of historically rising revenues. So more difficult, and also this pension issue I talk about is, is crowding that out, the obligations of states to pay that is rising. So it's making getting 
budget, passing a budget on time, more difficult. But it hasn't had a big impact. It did, to some degree, affect the state of Illinois. I think that was probably uh, a bit on the extreme side. But since they're passing their budget, those spreads have actually tightened back down a bit as well. So not as much of an impact as, as you think. And one difference I'll point out is that states constitutionally have to pass a budget on time as opposed to the federal government, which which doesn't. So I think that there's uh, some degree of reticence on the market knowing that these budgets can be late, and ultimately it's not going to have a really large impact. How big a turning point was what we saw happen in uh, in Illinois, the threat of a downgrade, uh, the, the back and forth there? Was, was that uh, something from which other states learned? It's pretty interesting. If you go back to the early 2000s, you look at California, they had a similar, not quite as dire, but similar situation where their rating were, was under pressure. A lot of that was around the failure to pass a, a budget. And I think at some degree, there is the threat of a, a very low rating in yeah. the case of Illinois, below investment grade. That raises your borrowing costs significantly, not just incrementally. And I think to some degree that lawmakers right. do, do pay attention to that. And I think other states are also learning from that example. We want to have you back and dive into this, but quickly, uh, uh, Peter Hayes, is, is Illinois isolated or are there other Illinois out there? The states I mentioned before continue to have pension problems. When you look over the next five to 10 years, yeah. the amount of their budget that they have to set aside to pay this pension problem grows dramatically. And states like New Jersey, states like Connecticut, Pennsylvania, yeah. Kentucky, et cetera, they all have a similar problem, and it, they haven't really addressed how they're go- going to pay right. for that longer term. So, yes, there are some there are some similarities out there. Yeah. We're going to come back. Peter Hayes with us with BlackRock to talk about muni bonds. I know David Gurr has got a whole bunch of questions on uh, uh, taking advantage of that coupon that comes forple tax-free as well. But David Gurr and Tom Keenan with a good conversation with Peter Hayes. He's a BlackRock on a topic we don't spend enough time on, uh, which is – Tax-free bonds and tax-advantage bonds, I guess, as well. Peter, help me with airports right now. LaGuardia is doing, I think, two tranches of public-private construction. Mm-hmm. Every other airport in the East Coast seems to be being dug up and rebuilt. Is that an ample opportunity for you, or do you run from private-public uh, enterprises as fast as you can? No, I think private, I mean, you think about the need for infrastructure in this country, I think in order to get everything done, there's going to have to be an element of public-private partnership that will take place. The Gothels Bridge is another example locally where we're, we're seeing that. So I think there there is an opportunity, and you have to think about, is it uh, design, is it build, is it operate, what elements are this, the private entity uh, being involved? But in many cases, the design and build, there is some, some greater efficiencies in, in that. And then they're lending, obviously, doing the financing in the public market, the municipal market, where we do see opportunities in some of these airports, particularly the large we like to call them origination and destination, where you know, people, large hubs for some of these larger airlines, we, we think are going to continue to grow. So you mentioned LaGuardia, obviously Newark, there's Chicago, San Francisco. So those are some of the names that we like. And I think we'll continue to see some pretty robust infrastructure spending out of some of those entities. How have you processed uh, what's been the conversation in Washington, albeit the one that's been taking place, I guess, on the sidelines here over these last few months about uh, more fiscal spending, about an infrastructure spending package, about this $1 trillion the president would like to see go toward uh, infrastructure? As you as you plot a course forward, uh, how do you process what's being said about that in Washington? 
The coming out of the election, the rhetoric was all this infrastructure spending would lead to more issuance. Excuse me, in our market, and would ultimately be be negative. The market would have to adjust higher in yields to absorb all this. But we've taken a step back from that and realized that's not going to be the picture. Plus, we see the gridlock that's occurring around healthcare tax reform and infrastructure. So we're certainly a lot less concerned about that going forward. And I think there's an important element is there's a greater realization in Washington among lawmakers that the municipal market actually is a low cost, fairly efficient way for issuers yeah. to finance infrastructure projects. And I think there's been sort of a acknowledgement of as well that they want to keep mm-hmm. a lot of that at the state and local level. So I think the municipal market is going to continue to be an important element. But we're not going to see a big sell-off because there's going to be a trillion dollars all of a sudden right. borrowing in our market. That's not going to be the case. Peter, I want to walk through Lazard Muni 101 on premium bonds. These are bonds folks mm-hmm. priced above 100 and par. I'm looking at a Denver piece out 12 years that the coupon's five and a quarter percent. I guess federal tax-free, and if you're in Colorado, maybe it's double tax-free. I don't know. This mm-hmm. puppy was trading two years ago at uh-huh. 116 with a massive premium. Uh-huh. The premium's gone 116 down to 109. Excuse me, the price has gone 116 down to 109. Um, do you want to buy premium bonds? Do you, I mean, Dan Fuss at Luma Sales was legendary for buying discount stuff trading at 60, 70, 80. Does BlackRock go in the world of premium bonds? Do you want to be there? We'll go premium. We'll go discount. It's partially a view on on interest rates. So typically the time you want to buy discount bonds is either they go to a discount because there's been a big credit event. So you can think about what happened with some of the Puerto Rico bonds. And that may or may not be an opportunity. Or you think interest rates are going to drop dramatically. That's usually when interest uh, discount bonds outperform. That's not the case. With the 224 10-year, hard to believe interest rates are going to go significantly lower. And what happens with premium bonds, yes, it's a big premium price, dollar price to pay, but they also act somewhat defensive when interest rates rise a bit. So there is a value in owning premium and cushion bonds, and, and we do actually buy those and purchase that structure. Tom mentioned uh, airports. Let me ask you just about other uh, areas of opportunity. Are there are there areas of opportunity right now in uh, education or universities uh, offering a lot or, or hospitals? Where, where else is there opportunity right now when it comes to munis? Hospitals are an area that we liked for a long time. It's been uh, the picture going forward is a little muddled given the uncertainty around what will happen with ACA because there's implications obviously for Medicare and Medicaid and the amount of aid that uh, funding that hospital states will get and then pass on to hospitals, et cetera, the amount of uninsured. So there's some question in the hospital sector, but still from a risk reward, a lot of value in hospitals. We tend to like the bigger systems as opposed to the single standalone. Another area you mentioned education differentiation there between large public institutions, which continue to see high enrollments, high demand, and better funding from states, versus some of the smaller privates, which are straining. Their budgets are being strained. In some cases, demand is is down. So there's some good value there as well, but particularly in the public sector. One final question. Where's the yield Mm -hmm. hog occurring right now, where you shake your head? Where are people being greedy and they're running into trouble? (laughs) 
that, that's actually a really good question because we're, we're having that discussion here. A lot of money going into, particularly to high yield. You see this not only in the municipal market, but other fixed income areas as well. With yields low, people are stretching for yield. They're taking a little more duration risk, moving out the curve, which we're comfortable with that because we don't think rates are going dramatically higher. But a lot of the new high yield deals that are coming to market are structurally fairly weak, and they remind me a bit of pre-crisis 2005 to 2007. So that's an area where I have some concerns. I wouldn't say today, but we're thinking about it over the next several months. Okay, Peter Ace, thank you so much. Great update. Greatly appreciate Thanks for having Black me. Rock. I love doing this, uh, David. We just, you know, we the, we don't do this enough. Muni bonds really reaches coast to coast, and there's some interesting stories there. Yeah, and a great voice. Well. Peter Hayes, great voice on uh, that. Thanks again for, for joining us here. But you you're right. We don't do it enough. You get 5% federal tax-free. John Tucker, that in New Jersey, if you were FIPL tax-free, you know, which is like FORPL tax-free. Then they'd FIPL, raise your tolls. Uh. Yeah, exactly. When You, you know— <laughs> Can't have that. I, I mean, the, the 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 tax equivalent yield on a five percent coupon in New Jersey ought to be like eleven <laughs> percent. <laughs> you know, sadly, you're not too far off the mark. I unfortunately, Thomas. I guess I'm not. Anyways, we get a huge response when Mr. Hayes and other bright lights of municipal bonds are on, and we thank you for listening uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.